One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome back to the History of England, episode 47, The Fall of Jerusalem. Just a very quick bit of housekeeping before I start. I think I've tried before to recommend a book before each episode, and as I remember, it's gone rubbishly, because basically I kept forgetting. But there were a few comments that came up about this, and giving other references over Christmas, so I start the year with renewed vigour. OK, so what I've done is to set up a bookshop linked to Amazon on thehistoryofengland.com. The bookshop links to the UK Amazon and the US Amazon. The bookshop has a load of books from Anglo-Saxon time to Angevin, and actually a few from the next phases as well, so you can read ahead if you want to, and I've made a few notes about why I chose them. So then I will restart doing recommendations at the start of each episode. And for this episode, Runciman's Histories of the Crusades remain classical, and still the best read, because he treads that line really well between the story and the scholarship. So I recommend his Volume 1, The First Crusade, and The Foundation of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, which takes you right up to 1187. Sadly, though, it doesn't seem to be available in the US in the full edition. So for second best, but still, of course, fantastic, Riley Smith's much more concise survey of the whole crusading business, A History of the Crusades, is a really tremendous introduction. The Crusades, of course, are a topic of massive and enduring interest. So go to the bookshop or store where there's a special category just for the Crusades, with a few more recommendations. OK, in second bit of housekeeping, can I announce the winner of the Great British Coin Giveaway, da, 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 which goes to Matt. My very grateful thanks again to Rob for the idea and the coins, and again to all of you who've commented. I've really enjoyed it. OK, so Richard is finally approaching the coast of the Holy Land. But before we can let him land, let's have a bit of more background on the recent political history of the Holy Land to add to the bit of background we had last week. I appreciate that this is turning into a series that should be better entitled the Not Strictly History of England podcast. But the Crusades are surely worth something of a diversion. And then we'll get on to the Third Crusade next week, OK? So we talked about the political geography of Outremer last week, and it's worth stressing again that this is frontier land, in a semi-permanent state of warfare. Over the years, the Crusaders built a series of massive fortifications. I've posted a few pictures on the website, but do go and do a bit of surfing for yourself. Some of the castles are your absolute quintessential medieval fortresses. Places like Crac de Chevalier and Kerak are massive and quite extraordinary fortifications, and nothing gives a clearer impression of the insecurity of the Crusader states than a quick look at these walls. These fortifications helped the Crusaders cope with another of their recurrent problems, which was a chronic lack of manpower. It's probable that the Kingdom of Jerusalem itself could call on something like a 1,000 knights and 5,000 sergeants. And probably there was a similar total in the other three states, Tripoli, Edessa and Antioch, combined. And then added to that were the military orders of the Templars and Hospitallers, who could probably provide up to a thousand very well-trained and effective warriors. 
This lack of manpower was offset to a degree by the stream of visitors to Outremer, who kind of replenished the stock every so often, and some of them would have stayed to fight. But most of them would only fight a year before going home, so it wasn't a very reliable source of fighting men. Getting an army that represented the full strength of Outremer into the field would of course be practically impossible anyway. There were castles and towns to garrison, and each state often had its own priorities. The Templars and Hospitallers reported only to the Pope, not to the King of Jerusalem, and so they, um, and they often disagreed on the best strategy to take. So this meant that if the Islamic states could combine, they could bring far greater numbers, and it also meant that they were able to recover far more quickly from any military defeats. The core of the Muslim armies were professional soldiers, the Ghulam or Mamluk, who were trained for war from childhood. The Islamic armies were characterised by speed and mobility, using lightly armed horsemen and horse archers to move large distances, supported by baggage trains that were equally well adapted to the terrain and climate. The Arabic forces, for example, used camels to an extent that the Crusaders never did. Set against this, the Crusaders' big strength was of course their massed, heavy cavalry, with heavily armoured knights that were just unstoppable if if deployed effectively. But local tactics developed quickly to cope with this. A particular favourite, for example, was for the light Muslim cavalry to retreat or to split down the middle, dancing round the Frankish cavalry and surrounding it. So discipline was absolutely essential. It was crucial that the Crusader commander picked exactly the right time to go on the offensive. Too early and they could be cut to pieces. The Crusaders also learnt a lot from their military experiences in the East, which made their way back home to the West. One big example of this is in the design of castles. The Crusaders were massively impressed by the fortifications they found in the Byzantine Empire, and they used the things they found there to refine the design of castles back in the West. So let's take Chateau Gaillard, for example, built on the River Seine in Normandy at Les Andelis, and partly we're going to talk about this because it was Richard's favourite castle. But we're also partly going to talk about it because one of our listeners, Priscilla, wrote in and reminded me about it. Chateau Gaillard was built by Richard to compensate for the castles that had been lost to Philip Augustus, like Gisors, while he was held hostage, as we'll hear it in a couple of weeks' time. And the design owes an awful lot to the fortresses at Byzantium, including Constantinople itself. So the key things are that Chateau Gaillard uses a number of concentric walls to create killing grounds between the walls. So, in they charge the defenders, get over one wall, and they found a completely open area with no cover whatsoever, where they can be shot at from the second rampart. And then the second rampart itself is uniquely constructed. It's got 19 arcs, all pierced by arrow slits. And the arcs mean that there are absolutely no hard angles or flat surfaces for boulders to hit against, making it harder for the walls to be battered down. Gaia was built exceptionally fast. It was finished in just a year by Richard, and it cost an enormous amount of money. But it became his favourite place to stay during his wars with Philip, and he famously swore that he could hold the castle, though its walls were made of butter. And he signed lots of writs and charters from what he called the Fair Castle of the Rock. Back in the Holy Land, the Westerners also learnt that while their heavy cavalry could be devastatingly effective, they also needed light cavalry for scouting and to drive off the Muslim horse archers. So, a substantial part of the Christian forces, particularly the military orders, were the Turkopoles, and they were just that, light armoured and armed, 
fast-moving horsemen. By and large, they were usually drawn from the native Christian population, or often from Christianised Seljuks, and therefore they tended to hold a lower status than the Frankish sergeants. The Muslim soldiers themselves also despised them, thinking of them as traitors, and when they were captured, they were usually all killed. For the first 50 years, the Crusader states found their place amongst the warring Christian and Muslim states of the region. They played politics and warfare with the rulers around them, and they seemed on the point of capturing two key fortresses of Aleppo and Damascus at a couple of occasions. They had enormous fun playing even more politics amongst themselves, and generally proved that if the Muslim states could be disunited, well, the Christian states could disunite even more. Then, in 1144, the town of Edessa was lost, and by 1150, the whole county of Edessa had been overrun by a leader called Nur ad-Din. And this loss was despite a remarkably ham-fisted Second Crusade led by Louis VII of France and Conrad of Germany, which washed up against the walls of Damascus and achieved pretty much zip. Though they didn't know it, Outremer had therefore already passed its high watermark. But you could be forgiven for not noticing it for the next 20 years or so, until things began to move towards disaster. And there were a number of reasons for this disaster. And so here we go. Seven reasons why Jerusalem was lost and the Third Crusade was launched. Just before we go into that, there are a whole load of place names coming up. So do go to thehistoryofengland.com and you'll find loads of maps there that you can look at. Number one was internal disunity. The nobility of Outremer were a fractious lot who were not above more than a wee bit of infighting. Disagreements between the different states of Outremer and within the Kingdom of Jerusalem itself made it really, really difficult to organise a coherent response to external threats. Number two was the failure of leadership at a key time. By and large, actually, the Kingdom of Jerusalem was served by energetic and effective kings. They weren't perfect by any means, but with limited resources they did a pretty good job. The trouble was that they kept dying young. Baldwin III died at the age of 32, his successor Amalric at 38, then Baldwin IV famously was a leper and despite showing plenty of talent died aged 24, and his successor Baldwin V who dies at the age of 9. By various divisive shenanigans this brought to the throne one Guy of Lusignan. So there's that Lusignan name again that we keep hearing. Guy is to prove unfortunately a bit of an idiot. Number three is pretty much unpronounceable, but I'm going to give it a try. It's the Battle of Myrocephalum in 1176. Myrocephalum. Not so bad. Anyway, Manuel Cromnanus had been a brilliant emperor, who had been quite remarkably supportive of the Crusader states, despite some really quite outrageous, duplicitous behaviour on their part. And although we tend to think of the empire as being in terminal decline and a broken reed after the defeat of Manzikert in 1076, Theirs was one of the most effective army around, larger and more effective than any one of the Islamic states ranged against it. All the states of the area found that army scary. When it approached, they ran away and they made treaties. But Myrocephalum changed all of that, and Manuel died anyway, and the terminal decline was really on. A terminal decline that's still going to take almost 300 years to complete, so the terminal decline that most empires would like to have a shot at, but terminal decline nonetheless. Number four is unity, the unity of the Muslim states, and that unity's name was Saladin, surely the most famous of Muslim princes in the West. But Saladin was preceded by princes in Syria who started the process of unification, men like Zengi and Nur ad-Din, 
who brought Aleppo and Damascus into a united Syrian state and asserted control over Egypt. But even Nour ad-Din never quite managed to achieve the level of focus and determination necessary to rub out the Crusader states. And number five, therefore, is Saladin. His personal name was Yusuf and he came from Tikrit in modern-day Iraq. His route to power came through his uncle Nour ad-Din, for whom he worked in Damascus and Egypt. But despite this, when Noradin died in 1174, he still had plenty of work to do to establish his control over Syria and Egypt, essentially having to reconquer Damascus and Aleppo, and doing the same thing further east at Mosul. A vast weight of myth and legend has built up about Saladin, in the west as the perfect chivalrous prince, and in the east as a hero of Arab nationalism. In point of fact, at the time he was viewed by Egypt in particular as a northern conqueror, who sucked them dry of resources for his Syrian adventures, and was viewed with suspicion by the caliphate in Baghdad. But in his own lands, he seems to have been revered as a good ruler and a deeply religious man. Saladin was eager to take a holy war to Outremer, but to an extent, he was also driven to it by a need to establish his legitimacy within the Islamic world. Number six is a chap called Reynold of Châtillon. Reynold was a newcomer who stayed after the Second Crusade. He managed to get himself made Prince of Antioch through marriage, but also managed to spend 16 years in prison in Aleppo. Unfortunately, Manuel Comnenus finally paid his ransom. I say unfortunately because Reynold was a bit of a blithering idiot, with all the mindless prejudices of the newcomer. Facing a powerful opponent in Saladin, the policies of the kings of Jerusalem was to play for as much time as possible, and hope that disunity reasserted itself. And despite Saladin's really strong position, in 1182, Baldwin, king of Jerusalem, had managed to sign a truce with him. So did Reynold stick to the truce, keep a low profile, wait for disunity to reappear, and breathe a heavy sigh of relief that Outremer had survived? Did he Reynold attacked Arab trading caravans travelling through the Crusader lands under truce. But worst of all, he launched a programme of piracy from the Red Sea, and robbed and murdered Islamic pilgrims on their way to the holy places. This horrified the Islamic world. OK, so I'm clearly suffering from a case of 2020 hindsight, given that I know Jerusalem falls in 1187, but the manner of Reynolds' truce-breaking raised the temperature to a disastrous degree, and events were to show how importantly they figured in Saladin's thinking. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Reynold was also to play a role in the last one then, number seven, which is some remarkably daft decisions that the Crusaders made. And I'm going to talk through number seven to tell the story of the fall of Jerusalem and the Crusader states, because it's one of the great stories of the Middle Ages, and I'm not going to miss the chance to tell it. So hopefully we're all enjoying being part of the Not Specifically History of England podcast while I shamelessly indulge my own interests and inflict them on you. But then in the words of the song, it's my podcast and I'll crusade if I want to. So Jerusalem fell in 1187. But this wasn't Saladin's first attempt to conquer Outremer. He'd been heavily defeated at the Battle of Montgizar in 1177, for example, 
by King Baldwin IV, and at that stage had been forced to retreat. And in 1182, in response to Reynolds' truce-breaking that we've just mentioned, Saladin attacked again. Guy of Lusignan had by then become the regent for the dying leper king, Baldwin IV. Guy gathered the biggest army Outremer had ever brought to the field. They marched to the Pools of Goliath, a well-watered position across the valley, to where Saladin's numerically superior army sat. This is like a sort of dress rehearsal for the big one four years later. Guy sat there, while two factions argued about what they should do. On one side, Reynold of Chatillon argued that they should be aggressive and they should just attack. Raymond of Tripoli and the barons of Ibeline argued that they were outnumbered, in difficult terrain, and they should remain on the defensive. Guy chose defence, and he was right to do so. And eventually Saladin withdrew. But actually, the consequences weren't very positive. Many of the barons and soldiers of Outremer decided that Guy was a coward, and this would influence Guy's fatal decision four years later. OK, so fast forward four years. Baldwin the leper has died, as has his son. Guy of Lusignan is king through his wife Sibella. The kingdom is riven with conflict and factions, but it's OK. A truce is in place. Enter Reynold of Chatillon, stage left, twirling villainous moustache. He raids a massive caravan, travelling from Cairo, and Guy is too weak to force him to make reparations. War is now inevitable. And in 1187 it duly arrives. Saladin gathered an army from all the corners of his empire, and in July he crossed the River Jordan and positioned himself five miles west of the Sea of Galilee, while a contingent besieged Tiberias, where the wife of Raymond of Tripoli was besieged in the citadel. Really, everyone, a visit to the History of England website and a review of the maps would be good news now. Guy was at Acre and had gathered pretty much all the fighting manpower of Outremer, 1,200 knights and 10,000 sergeants and turcopoles. Raymond of Tripoli advised caution. Look, we're in the middle of the summer heat. Water is scarce. Surely Saladin wouldn't be able to maintain his army for long. Let's just wait it out. This, incidentally, is despite the fact that it's his wife who's inside the citadel at Tiberius being besieged by Saladin. But Reynold of Chatillon and Gerard, the Grand Master of the Templars, were all for aggression and attack. And Guy listened to them and he ordered the army east to Tiberius. On the 2nd of July they arrived at a well-watered place called Sephoria and again Guy held council. And again Raymond pointed out that they were here in a strong position that Saladin wouldn't attack them here and that he'd be forced to withdraw, that his army was stronger than their own, that to march over the parched hills in the summer's heat without water would be disastrous. And he appeared to have persuaded the council. But then, later that night, the Grand Master of the Templars and Reynold of Chatillon went to Guy's tent and they argued that it would be shameful to let Tiberius fall and shameful to show weakness in the face of the Muslims. And Guy was weak enough to be persuaded. So the Christian army set out and took the northern road and Saladin was very well informed and he moved to block their path at a place called Hattin above where the road started to fall down towards the Sea of Galilee. Friday the 3rd of July was hot and airless. There was no water on the road and the agony of thirst for horses and men slowed the march. There were constant attacks by Saladin's mobile forces which meant continual pressure and it slowed the march even further. So the Crusaders had only reached the plateau at Hattin by the afternoon and they could see the descent to water and safety ahead of them, but they could also see Saladin's army blocking the way. 
The Templars were exhausted and they asked the king to stop for the night. Raymond knew they had to keep going to get to water since their supplies of water were completely gone. But the king again deferred to the Templars and the halt was ordered because he believed there was a well at Hattin. When he heard this news, Raymond is said to have cried, Our Lord God, the war is over. We are dead men. The kingdom is finished. Which I would guess would come quite a long way down on the list of great inspirational battle speeches. But the wells at Hattin were dry. In vain men searched for water, only to be killed by Saladin's army as it moved up to surround the Christian army. And by the morning of the 4th of July, that work was completed. That day was a disaster. The Christian infantry was maddened by thirst and surged towards the lake in the distance. Saladin had fired the scrub on the hills, so they were further enraged by choking smoke and were massacred or taken prisoner. The mounted knights fought on the top of a hill and again and again they fought off Saladin's attacks. There was now no hope for the Crusader army, but they fought on. There were a couple of small breakouts, notably from Raymond of Tripoli, but that was it. The end was captured in an eyewitness account by Saladin's son. When the King of the Franks was on the hill with that band, they made a formidable charge against the Muslims facing them, so that they drove them back to my father. I looked towards him, and he was overcome by grief and his complexion pale. He took hold of his beard and advanced, crying out, Give the lie to the devil! The Muslims rallied, returned to the fight, and climbed the hill. When I saw that the Franks withdrew, pursued by Muslims, I shouted for joy, We have beaten them! But the Franks rallied and charged again like the first time and drove the Muslims back to my father. He acted as he had done on the first occasion, and the Muslims turned upon the Franks and drove them back up the hill. I again shouted, We've beaten them! But my father rounded on me and said, Be quiet! We have not beaten them until that tent falls. And as he was speaking to me, the tent fell. The Sultan dismounted, prostrated himself in thanks to God Almighty, and wept for joy. The aftermath of Hattin was almost as dramatic as the battle itself. This defeat stripped Outremer of the capability to fight back and defend itself. There had been defeats before, but nothing even remotely as complete as this. Almost all of the Crusader leaders were also captured. The True Cross, the inspirational mascot of the Crusader armies, was taken. Saladin received Guy and the Crusader leaders, including Reynold of Châtillon and Gerard of the Templars, in his tent. And here's a little reenactment of that scene for you. So first of all, Saladin invited Guy to sit beside him. Then Reynold came in and he sat next to Guy. Guy was gasping with thirst, his head dangling as though drunk, looking very scared and not at all kingly and crusadery. Saladin rounded on Reynold. How many times have you sworn an oath and violated it? How many times have you signed agreements you have never respected? Reynold was having none of it. Kings have always acted thus, I did nothing more. Saladin turned to the whimpering Guy and had cold water brought to him. Guy drank and then handed what remained to Reynold. At this point, Saladin was careful to say to Guy, You did not ask permission before giving him water. I am therefore not obliged to grant him mercy. This is because of the tradition that if you give a man water, you're also obliged to protect him. So then, exit Saladin, leaving a bunch of whimpering captives. Later he returned and ordered Reynold brought to where he stood. This was personal. Saladin walked towards him, sword in hand, and struck him viciously between the neck and the shoulder blade. 
When Reynold fell, he cut off his head and dragged the body by its feet to the king. Guy was understandably upset. But again, Saladin was said to be reassuring, that quite how reassuring you can be while holding on to the foot of a bloke you've just beheaded is something of a moot point. Maybe he casually dropped the foot by this point and sort of shoved it behind him to get it out of the way. But anyway, Saladin now said in a calm, reassuring tone, A king does not kill a king. This man was killed only because of his maleficence and perfidity. I don't think history records what Guy says. Suggestions are welcome. Maybe something like, yeah, never liked him either, or not like me. I've never had any of that maleficence or perfidiousness stuff. Either way, Gerard and Guy were ransomed to fight another day. The same cannot be said of the rest of the Templars and Hospitallers, who were beheaded. And in a rather touching, if slightly foolish display of solidarity, many of the ordinary soldiers claimed to be Templars and were also therefore beheaded. Here's a nice little quote from one of the Arabic chroniclers. Saladin ordered that they should be beheaded, choosing to have them dead rather than in prison. With him was a whole band of scholars and Sufis, and a certain number of devout men and ascetics, each begged to be allowed to kill one of them, and drew his sword and rolled back his sleeves. Saladin, his face joyful, was sitting on his dais. The unbelievers showed black despair. It is just worth noting that it is often pointed out that the Crusaders were guilty of appalling brutality, such as the massacres at the capture of Jerusalem and at Acre. And in general this is true, and this is often contrasted with a far less brutal approach on the Muslim side. But Saladin and the Islamic States were also quite capable of the odd atrocity of their own. The consequences of Hattin were quite catastrophic, and really to judge Richard's crusade, you absolutely have to understand how bad things were. Tiberius fell immediately, and the rest of Galilee fell quickly and easily, including Acre. Then Saladin just moved up the coast. Tyre did refuse to surrender, but Sidon capitulated without a fight, and then Beirut and Jabil. In the south, Ascalon fell, a vital fortress for the defence against armies from Egypt. At Gaza, Gerard of Reedford cravenly ordered the Templars to surrender in return for his liberty. And meanwhile, Jerusalem was waiting for the axe to fall. They prepared as well as they could, but only twelve knights were left with inside the city. The defence was organised by Bailey and the Vibeline, but the situation was hopeless when on the 20th of September, Saladin appeared before the wall. After ten days of fighting, Balian managed to get Saladin to offer terms, which were that every Christian could redeem himself at a rate of ten dinars for a man, five for a woman, and one for a child. And Balian did a bit of bartering, and he managed to organise a bulk deal for 7,000 people for 30,000 dinars. Meanwhile, the patriarch Heraclitus earned himself general disgust by cheerfully leaving, weighted down with gold and silver plate and ornaments belonging to the church, leaving a long stream of Christian slaves going in the other direction. The news, of course, was greeted with general horror in the West. But the complex nature of relationships in the area was demonstrated by the fact that the Orthodox Christians stayed right where they were in Jerusalem. And that the Byzantine Emperor actually sent a note of congratulation to Saladin, well done, and asked that the Christian holy places revert to Orthodox rather than Latin usage. Saladin now turned his attention to the remaining fortresses and cities. The two massive fortresses in southern Jordan, Karak and Monreal, took all of 1188 to reduce, and they fell only to starvation. The Templar fortress at Safed and the Hospitallers at Beaver went as well. There was the odd success. 
the castle at Beaufort held out, as did Crack de Chevalier and Tortosa. Antioch survived, and Tripoli also. But the one place that was to come back and haunt Saladin was Tyre. Tyre was a particularly tough nut to crack. You may remember Alexander the Great had to work really hard to reduce the place himself. The castle was connected to the mainland only by a very narrow strip of land. But at first, everything seemed to be going well for Saladin. Reynold of Sidon was negotiating the surrender and Saladin had even got to the stage of posting some banners on the walls when into the city sailed Conrad of Montferrat. Freshly arrived from the west, he was horrified at the mere thought of surrendering Tyre. And Conrad was a brave and ruthless man and he was convinced they could hold Saladin off until a new crusade until a new crusade was preached from the west and help arrived. The banners were therefore thrown off the walls and the fight was back on. Saladin tried every trick in the book, including parading Conrad's father in front of the walls and threatening to kill him unless Conrad surrendered. Conrad, though, was unmoved, and his dad was made of the same material and told his son to fight on and take no notice. In a rather nice added touch, Conrad actually fired a crossbow bolt at his father, saying that he'd had a long enough life as it was. Now, if I'd been Conrad's dad, I'd have said enough of the realism already, but life was tough in those days. By the end of 1187, Saladin's forces were tired and they wanted to go home. And Saladin thought he could take the remaining bits next year, so he let Tyre survive. Holding on to Tyre was massively important to the survival of Outremer. It gave hope and a sea base to work from. It did have one less desirable consequence, however. When King Guy was released by Saladin, he came to Tyre to demand the keys of the city. Conrad told him to push off. He told Guy that he was simply too rubbish to be king, he'd really messed up at Hattin, and he was a sad loser guy. Things then got worse for Guy. He was only king because of his wife, Sibella, who was of the royal line. And then in 1190, Sibella died. Now there was another royal heiress around called Isabella, but she was already married to a bloke called Humphrey of Toron. Humphrey was not keen on the idea of the throne. He'd already been encouraged to challenge Guy and steadfastly refused. The idea of being a king was really not attractive to him. In fact, it was so unattractive that he was remarkably unfazed when his wife was abducted, their marriage annulled, and Isabella then married off to Conrad, who then claimed the throne by the right of his wife. Just go right ahead, he said. As long as you don't try to make me king, that's fine. Humphrey actually was to remain loyal to Guy and then to Richard. Guy went off with his finger in his eye to meet his family's overlord, Richard I, in Cyprus, where our stories finally come back together again. So Saladin didn't quite finish the job, but would have felt pretty confident that the end was in sight. And if you look at the map, you can see that Outremer was basically finished. A tiny bit of land around Antioch and Tripoli, a few castles, Tyre on the coast and a handful of isolated castles in the interior. And this is the background to the Third Crusade. Outremer was hanging on by its very fingertips. The response from Christendom to the fall of Jerusalem came in a few forms. As we've seen, Richard and Philip set out to help. Meanwhile, the great German Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick Barbarossa, now 70, set off overland with an army of 200,000. Absolutely massive. But meanwhile, probably most remarkably of all, in fact, in a funny kind of way... Guy himself, in a desperate throw, managed to scrape together an army of 400 knights and 7,000 footmen. 
he launched an attack on Acre, whose garrison probably outnumbered him by quite a large margin. His aim was to surprise them, but they weren't surprised. So Guy sat his army down in front of the walls. It wasn't much of a siege, to be honest. The walls weren't even fully surrounded, but it was an offensive action. And slowly troops from abroad came to join him, small expeditions under the command of individual leaders and some men with Conrad, no I'm the king, of Montferrat. Saladin brought his army down to crush them and on the 15th of September a confused battle took place. The long and short was that the Christians started well but Saladin rallied and counter-attacked and the garrison attacked the rearguard mauling the Templars badly including killing our friend Gerard. But Guy managed to get his men back into a safe camp and so everyone settled down for a three-way siege the Muslims on Acre, Guy in his camp outside the wall and Saladin about five miles outside the city. And then into the situation in 1161 came Richard and Philip. So there you have it. And next week we'll see what happens on the Third Crusade. Meanwhile, if you want to know more about the Crusades, there's not just the books I've recommended, but a really great website that gives an overview in a really simple way. So I've put a link on that on thehistoryofengland.com. So finally, please keep your comments coming on iTunes, the website, Facebook or email. Thanks for listening, good luck and have a great week. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth 90 Day Fiancé. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com <laughs>